The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. I think there probably has been more of a switch to a focus on on the short term, um, given the volatility in the market. But we do tend, well, not tend to, we do, we take a long-term view. So we're not trying to time the market. Well, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. My name is Matt McCard and I'm co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. And my guest today in the Ethical Partners Studio, otherwise known as Meeting Room 2 here at Ethical Partners, is the highly respected Bronwyn Moncrief, who is the General Manager and Head of Research for Zenith Investment Partners. Now, this is the first time the podcast has featured someone from the investment consulting area. So we are going to go through the basics first and then the detail in what is a really fascinating area in the industry. Bronwyn, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. That's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'm going to run through a short bio and hopefully won't embarrass you too much. Bronwyn leads the Zenith research team, starting her career uh, with the business as a senior investment analyst before being appointed to head of research in 2012, around 10 years ago. She joined the investment industry in 1989 and since then has specialised in the research and evaluation of investment managers and the provision of advice to a wide range of clients. Now, just a little bit about Zenith. They have ratings on 900 investment products across a number of different active and index funds uh, in this country. So prior to joining Zenith, Bronwyn held senior manager research and analyst roles with the Future Fund, Lonsec and Russell, uh, also working in the US for a few years, which we're going to talk a little bit about as well. Bronwyn is a board director for Janet Clark Hall, the University of Melbourne, and is a volunteer puppy raiser for Guide Dogs Australia. We've just had Porgust, and Bronwyn will talk a bit more about that um, in a few minutes' time. So, Bronwyn, why don't we just jump straight into it? I'd love to, I guess, get your perspective just on the basics as to what you do. Many listeners won't be familiar with the investment consulting area. What you do, um, maybe just a a summary of your role, a bit about your team and and how you operate and those types of things. Yep, sure, Matt. What we do is research and rate investment products or, or managed funds, and we would come in and meet with people like yourselves, and we ask a lot of questions or collect a lot of data, ask a lot of questions, do a lot of analysis and try and work out what what you do. And the goal is to come up with uh, an opinion or a rating on, on what that is so that we can provide that that rating um, and our analysis to our research subscribers. And, and who, who's the typical end user of that research? So the end user would be a financial planner. So that that's our client base. So large dealer groups or so bigger groups of, of financial planners that come together, or it could be an individual um, financial planner as well. So it's, it's for example, if my mum and dad went in to see their financial planner and asked, I've got, I've said, I've got this money that I want to invest. Who should I put who would you suggest? And if they were a Zenith research subscriber, they'd pull out a long list of, of recommendations and go through and, and work out what would, would fit the, the risk tolerance, the objectives for, for my mum and dad kind of thing. Okay. So, so it's a way, I guess, to um, discern between different products, different managers, and um, because let's face it, there's thousands of products out there. So for the end financial advisor, a way to determine the best product for their client um, based on the research that you do. Is that fair? That's right. That's right. And we're not trying to rate everything. We're trying to to narrow it down to to what we have the most conviction in. Yeah, and no, I think that's that's a yeah, no, that's a really interesting point um, because a lot of products out there, I guess, aren't worthy 
uh, for whatever reason, of being rated. That's right. And even though we rate um, quite a lot of products, there's a lot that we don't rate um, that we would have a screened out rating on um, because they don't sort of pass our minimum quality threshold, really. I'm, I'm interested to, to know, what are the advisors, what, what's the financial planning community kind of telling you at the moment? What's what's the feedback you get from them? It's a pretty tough time in markets, clearly. What, what are you hearing from that broader um, client base of yours? Yeah, look, it is it is a tough time. Um, I'm, and we're definitely providing more information. Um, collateral is a word that, that gets used. So like um, thought pieces, things like that to to our clients that they can then talk with their clients. Um, so that's a reassurance um, factor for clients. Um, I think there probably has been more of a switch to a focus on, on the short term, um, given the volatility in the market. But we do tend, well, not tend to, we do, we take a long-term view. So we're not trying to time the market. Um, so it's that um, so advisors are sort of after more information and we're, we're trying to help them um, provide them with information that they can then provide to their clients. Do you think the nature of that feedback you've had to give them or the questions you're getting, do you think it's changed in the last few years just based on your experience? Look, it probably has changed a little bit and whether it's just the last few years, but over time I think um, people are – are just more sophisticated, I think, um, about the market and want to know more. And so, um, you know, are we providing the same information that we did 10 years ago? Well, no, we're not. Um, there's always things that we're, say, adding to our reports, for example, because, as I said, the our end users are more sophisticated and they're after more um, information. Some clients are, are happy with what we're, we're providing, but some some want more statistical analysis, that kind of stuff. Others don't want that. Um, others want more information on, on say, like the underlying underlying holdings in the fund. Um, so we're, yeah, it, it's a it's a bit, a, you know, there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So I guess your reports over time they just evolved, don't they? D- depending on that feedback and depending on what's happening in the market and trends and so on. If you looked at a Zenith report, an investment manager report of say. 10 years ago to the one today, what are the biggest differences, you reckon? Uh, that, that's um, very topical because we are in the process of doing a revamp of our um, product assessment report, the, the main report that we do that has the, the rating, the opinion, um, the description of what, what's going on in the product. And that's something that we've been working on for a while. But um, so what it's interesting that still like the guts of the report are there, it's still there, but um, the order of, of what we're doing is has changed, and I think that goes to your point. Um, if we could have 10 first pages, that would be great because <laughs> all the stuff that everyone wants is, you know, they want it to be on the first page. But um, some of the things that we're bringing forward, um, it's things like um, things that are very dear to your heart and what goes on here is the like the ESG, our responsible investment side of things. So that was not like it was hidden away at the back of the report, but – that's that's coming up to like page number one and two, and, and we've always had like summary points page on page one of what the classification um, that that we've given on the responsible investment side of things is. But but we've got more commentary um, and things like negative positive screening that's at the front of the report. So um, and then other things that get added along the way as 
as regulation um, has changed, there's been a, a focus on different different kind of things, mainly from a risk um, compliance perspective. So some of those things have come come forward as well, um, or have been introduced into the report and and come forward. But the bulk of what we do, the the things that we focus on, people, process, portfolio management, um, risk management, that you know the core of it is still there. Yeah, no, that front page is interesting. When I was head of research for Macquarie for Australian equities and, and then Hong Kong, we used to always say, if it's not on that front page, you're going to lose. <laughs> you're going to lose a lot of readers. Yeah. Uh, just people are time poor. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, yeah and exactly. Think, think less about what we do than we probably think they do. We yeah. like to think they're thinking about our research all the time, but they're not. No. They've got their time poor. They have a quick look. And then if it's interesting, they then move forward towards the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I'd love to know how you found yourself in investment research. It's not something you kind of sit in um, year 10 at school and think, uh, what's the future career you want to have? And that's not disparaging the career, of course, goes without saying, but it's not something that's evident um, to many people. So, so how, did you, how did you get there? You're exactly right. I didn't, um, I, I didn't see, um, you know, this was the path that I would go down. So when I was at high school, I really liked um, maths and science. So I did a lot of maths um, through high school. And um, another thing that I really liked doing was typing. Um, so in year nine, we did the, I did the full on, uh, we had, back then that was, we had a classroom full of tap, tap, tap typewriters. So I learned to type and touch type and I loved that. So the kind of things that I thought about at the end of year 12 were um, continue on doing the math science. Um, I'd had a couple of really good maths teachers along the way and I kind of thought that would be something I'd like to do. Um, I really love the typing side of things. So um, I kind of thought about being a, you know, going to secretarial college and doing um, shorthand and, and typing oh, all that kind of stuff. It's a critical skill. I was on a plane just yesterday and the lady next to me was on her laptop now that you can use the laptop on the plane. Yeah. She was a, an asset. Oh, no, she was a consultant, one of the management consultants. And, of course, I didn't see what she was doing in, in specifics, but I reckon she was typing at about 90 words a minute. It was absolutely incredible. And I thought to myself, if I could type that fast, I reckon I'd get three times the amount of work done. <laughs> so it's actually a very good life school to have. It is. And I think these days with technology and everything like that, it should be something that's, um, it should be taught in schools. Like it, it should be, um, it's as important as, as, um, spelling and grammar, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. So then I decided to go, to do uni and do a science degree um, and then I did a um, dip ed after that. You could have done straight teaching but I kind of thought that gave me more options um, and then I, my first job I decided not to go teaching in a high school. Um, I, there were a couple of things like I I lived in inner city Melbourne. I didn't want to buy a car. But you grew up in the country, right? Yeah, I grew up in, in country Victoria, northeast Victoria. So I had to move down to Melbourne to go to go to uni. And um I was approached about doing a corporate training um job for a firm of chartered accountants. And I kind of thought, okay, well that's that's using my my teaching skills. I don't have to buy a car. Um I could catch a tram into the city and I'm not going to have the discipline issues that that I could potentially have in in some of the high schools that you were likely to get as as a um first year. We well, also year couldn't out. determine where you're actually going to teach, right? I couldn't. They, they just placed you somewhere, right? That's exactly that's right. That's one you, of the challenges even today. Yeah, yeah. You pretty much put your your name in a hat for a region and um you know and there you go. So 
So even though I'm a qualified um, high school teacher, I've only ever done um, teaching in for my teaching rounds um, when I did that. So this is a, a long way of sort of saying how did I get get to here? And through that job, I started, I guess, seeing what what that firm of chartered accountants did. I was interested in the investment finance side of things. I went back and did more part time study um, in investment and finance because I didn't really do any of that through uni. And um, sort of gradually moved my way into um, a job. My first job in the industry was at National Mutual, which doesn't exist anymore. Performance reporting, where I had a lot to do with the accounting side of things, the unit pricing side of things, and the investment managers and um, analysts. So I really liked that. So sort of like step by step by step, ended up moving um, to to Sydney um, with work, started um, started working for Russell in Sydney and more exposed to the investment consulting side of things, strongly encouraged to do CFA, which I did. So it just sort of gradual, gradual, step by step, um, you know, found my way and, and ended up doing the manager research, which I really love and I've done for a long time. It's it's interesting. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people, as I'm sure you have over the years, and some people are absolutely hell bent on a career. And they say, ever since I was ten years old, or fifteen, or ever since I was at school, I've always wanted to be an investment analyst. I've always wanted to be a stockbroker. And there's other people who it's often by pure luck that they stumble down a path. And I think both can be equally as good. So I, I, I'm always careful never to write anyone off if they haven't been dedicated to a career from day one. I think if you're fortunate enough to know what you want to do from day one, that's great. But some very, very good people in the industry in all walks of life have kind of just got there. Yeah. And I think that's, it's hard because you, I mean, it, it take, well, it's taken me a while to work out what, what you like doing, what, what finds your interest. And then you just gradually sort of follow, follow that path. And yeah, there's not a straight path. I mean, okay, if you wanted to be a, a brain surgeon, um, you know, maybe you've, you've sort of probably need to start a bit earlier on that than, uh, than, than sort of following along. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting thing. And there probably wasn't that many people going down the maths and science route, particularly, um, Girls at that stage, very small town. Yeah. Um, did you kind of have to pioneer your way through there? I think you mentioned somewhere. Yeah, it was. I suppose when I think back about it, it seems like that. But to me, it didn't really. It was just. It, it's what I really like to do. I was encouraged to do. Um, it's not like I wasn't encouraged to do it. Not like from my mum and dad. Um, I've got two brothers, so I don't have any sisters. So I guess sort of being in that when you say male-dominated kind of thing, but, you know, like outnumbered. Um, yeah, I've never really um, – I mean, I'm definitely aware of it and I was in like year 11 and year 12. Like I was the only girl in my, my class that did the math, science, physics, you know, chem, that kind of stuff. It wasn't so much like that at uni, um, but, um, but I mean, I've sort of ended up in an industry that's that, – that it is, you know, quite – um, male dominated. I mean, our research team's a bit like that. Even, you know, we try really hard to, to, you know, balance that up with a lot of people do, but I've never, um, it's just been kind of what it is. So yes. I don't feel like I'm a pioneer or anything like that. And it's, um, if I think about, you know, growing up with mum and dad and that kind of stuff, um, I was always encouraged to do the same kind of outdoorsy kind of things or hands on. Like my dad's a retired builder. So, 
I'm, a, I'm pretty good with a hammer and a saw and yeah. that kind of stuff, same as my brothers. And like I probably did more, you know, helping mum serve the dinner than my brothers did. But It's probably, very, uh, probably a very outdoor upbringing, I would have thought. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. And, and active and probably different to a lot of city kids today. Yeah, I think about the upbringing that my kids have had that's sort of, and it's a different generation, um, you know, no phones, you know, for us, that kind of stuff. And it was, you had a bike. When you, you know, as soon as you could get a bike, that was great because you, we could go everywhere kind of thing. And really for us, it was sort of a couple of rules. You just needed to be home, home for dinner and like before dark. And, um, and I grew up on a lake and, um, on Lake Hume. And the other rule that we had, which I remember sort of growing up is that we weren't allowed to swim in the lake without an adult. Um, cause it sort of had these cold pockets and, um, you know, you get cramps and, there were a couple of um, young teenagers that were on a school swimming thing to the to the weir and and a couple of them drowned. So, you know, from then on, it's like, no, if there's an adult. But and how, how do you think that upbringing shaped you and shaped your, your values for what you do today? Um, I think it, it's very much uh, you have a go, you have a go and work it out as you go. Um, so I think that's probably the core and it's probably the core of me that um that yeah you just have a go I'm, I, you might not be uh you, you don't really know what you're doing but you'll have a go and work it out along the way um and I think it's also a um an outdoorsy kind of thing like I really do like being outdoors um I like the fresh air I like walking I do a lot of walking um, I, I like being outside and I think that's a big part. I mean, our jobs these days, you'd probably be the same. You're inside sitting on your bum for a lot. So I don't think humans are meant to actually be sitting on their backside for no, 50 hours a week. It's, no, not, it's not really no, that, that helpful no. functionally. Um, I mean, you certainly had a go when you put um, your name in the green card lottery. I didn't even know that existed, but yeah. tell us about that. So a big turning point there in just saying, right, we're going to go to the US into the biggest most sophisticated financial market in the world yeah. without a role necessarily. I know it worked out well. And yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. But, yeah, tell us about that big turning point for you. Yeah, we. I think it's because I worked for – when I worked for Russell in Sydney, and they're an American company, their head office um, is – is, well, then it was in Tacoma, so just south of Seattle on um, Pacific Northwest. And I think that's how I became aware of that. And my husband and I, we kind of thought, yeah, we'd always sort of been keen to work and travel. Coming up to Sydney um, was that kind of thing for us um, from Melbourne. Thought we'd give it a go. And, um, and we loved it up here. But, yeah, so we sort of thought, oh, well, we'll put our name in the hat. And then you, you did actually put your name and a few things like your email address and your mailing address on a piece of paper and mail it to somewhere in the Midwest of the US and thinking you'd never never hear anything again. And we had been away on a holiday um, and then came back home and there was a whole stack of mail and there's this big envelope and stuff. And you think, you have oh, like an eagle on the front or something? Oh, <laughs> it, <laughs> like an American flag? It mustn't have looked too sinister <laughs> because it sort of looked like, oh, my God, what's that? And we sort of put it aside and eventually got to it at the end of the week and, and it was addressed to me. And then I opened up and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this thing has come through. And it, it's not like they send you a green card in the mail. You then need to go through this basically about six-month process. You've got to prove that. You've got enough money to support yourself, um, education, 
because um, you can't go over there and get any benefits. They're more than happy to tax you at the full full rate, but you can't vote and you're not going to get any benefits. So you've got to be able to support yourself and then go through like a full medical. Um, so so we did all that and all throughout that time we had we hadn't told anyone about it. It was just my husband and I and we decided we weren't going to tell anyone. We changed our minds quite a few times because we both had good jobs that we liked here just to sort of throw it all in and go over there. But anyway, we decided to do it because if we didn't do it, we'd regret it, always regret it. And if we did it and we didn't like it, well, we'd just come back. So yeah, good, good fallback plan. Yeah. And you said that you had a, a really good boss at Russell in Seattle. What, what made him or her so good? Yeah, um, him, Paul Greenwood, um, who I'm still in con- contact with. Um, he was a great boss because I, when I first went over there, I was it's very early days for me, manager research. Um, and so the good thing about going over there, which I didn't sort of say, I went and resigned here in, in Sydney and my boss at the time, Alan Schonheimer, um, who I'm also still in contact with, um, said to me, Oh, no, 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 we can't have that. Um, let's try and work out. Um, how you can go and, you know, transfer to head office. And so that was fantastic. I didn't expect that. So I went over there with a job, um, which was great, made things a lot easier. My husband, he, he went over there and had to find a job. Um, but, um, yeah, so Paul was a great boss. I kind of think, and I've, I try very much and model my, I have over the years model myself on, on how he was to me. I try and be like that to the people in my team. And so he, I kind of think for somebody who was very early on in their career, he would just, he would give you, give you the chance. And it wasn't like you were, um, yeah, so open door, listened to what you had to say, made you feel like you had something to contribute, even though you think, oh man, he's been doing it for a lot longer than me and would send you off on these trips, research trips. And we did them by ourselves, send you off all over the country on these trips, um, to, to find out what's going on with these managers um, and then come back and you'd sort of talk to them about it. So um, always, as I said, open door, had a question, um, more than happy to, you know, to give you his time. So, yeah, as I said, I try and be like that. It's a great way to, to, to model your own behaviour on what you've learned in the past. I find I'll do that as well. And no doubt there's people in your team that are modelling their future leadership roles on what you're doing. So um, you. it can work, can yeah. work really well. Yeah. Um, so, so then, actually, I want to ask you this first. What is telemark skiing? Because when, in the US, you, you, you're able to, I think you're, what, you're in Seattle part, part of the time. You're yep. very outdoorsy. Yep. What is telemark skiing? Telemark skiing is, um, and so I grew up, I learned to ski in about grade five, um, because, and we learned to ski at Falls Creek. That's kind of near where we lived. Mum and dad, I mean, I would still go cross country skiing with dad. Um, and he's in his late eighties. It looks exhausting to me, cross country. Oh, because you well, can't actually dig your skis in. Yeah, there's it? two sorts. It's like you do the, um, um, like the very aerobic one, the skating kind of skiing. Yeah. I think it's called skating. Um, I don't do that one. I do the one that's like your, your skis. This is cross country skiing. They're in yeah. like the train tracks and you just sort of, you know, it's just like, yeah, um, still, there's no traction. So you look, you've oh, got yeah, it. That's no. great for your legs. <laughs> that's, that's, that looks, uh, I've, so that's I've always just, admired that as a tough sport and but exhilarating, I reckon. So telemark skiing, when we moved to the US, um, I was really keen to learn how to do this and my husband was too. So we joined the Mountaineers Club. We thought that might be a good way to sort of meet people because we didn't really know people over there. It's the kind of skiing that you do where you you have boots that look like 
downhill ski boots. They're quite rigid, but they have a baffle across the toe section. So you can flip, your toes are held in, but you can flex at that point. So you can lift your heel up. Your skis look like downhill skis, but they, um, you're not clipped in at the bottom. And so when you go to turn, you, you sort of put one leg forward and you pull one back and you kind of kneel down. So that gives you this, this turning sort of thing. So it's um it looks really good when you like, it looks you really can, good. It sounds yeah, really hard for it. someone like me. It took me a year, a good year of like a lot of effort to try and learn how to do it because you have your weight in a different yep. position. So downhill skiing you're more forward and if you are more forward and your heels aren't clipped in, you tend to go head first over the skis. Which so I spent a year doing that. And then you kind of work, okay, you've got to get your, your weight, you know, a bit more back. Well, that whole um, that whole area of the US is one of the best for outdoor activities, I think. Very much. In the world. Yeah. So, so you you eventually came back. Yep. You were kind of there for much longer than you thought, but you yep. came back and and um, and started at Zenith. Yeah. Um, no, I started no, at Lonsec. At Lonsec, sorry. Yeah, yep. And then moved on to Zenith after yep. that. Um, what are the what are the big picture changes you've seen in manager research from when you started to now? Just yeah. Anything yeah. kind of big picture that comes yeah. to mind on how it's changed? Yeah, there, there are um, – so I've spent a lot of time covering global equity managers and and small cap managers as well. It's mostly on the equity side. I've done a bit of on the fixed income and property side, but, but it's mostly been equity. And if I think about global equity, for example, if I go back to when I was at Russell, back then um, looking at global managers, it was very much about the country decision. That, that was – if you were the investment manager, you would be doing a lot of um, work on that country decision. And now, and I mean, it's probably been like it for the 10, you know, last sort of 10, even more than that. That's not really the big thing. I mean, it, it was sort of regional, but um, but even that, I don't think it's very much like that now. It's, it's you know, really stock stock specific bottom up so that i see as a very big change now i want to talk about the integrity of the research process yeah and and just around the the checks and balances that you have in place for your team to, to make sure your analysts gain the you know the fairest and best insight into how a manager operates and maybe that goes to the research process it mm-hmm. might be a good time to talk mm-hmm. about that now yep yep so our process is we as i said earlier we're not trying to rate everything um, we're trying to what we you, you refer to as sort of best of breed to pick out you know, what I'd like my mum and dad to have their money in kind of thing. Um, so how do we do that? We start at the front end. We have a filter. Um, so that's a quant filter where we pull in a whole lot of um, performance. Um, and it, it's sort of a quant model that we've put together, um, performance-based statistics over various time timeframes. And so that that ranks a universe. So if we're about to kick off Aussie small cap managers, we'll, we'll pull in the broad universe and do that. So we're trying to focus on, say, like the top 50 in the, in that, that list. And then we'll send out requests, um, for people to participate. Um, and then we get a whole lot of data back, do a whole lot of analysis, and then we'll go and do face to face meetings. Um, over the last few years, they've been. Um, virtual face-to-face meetings, but we usually uh, we would go and see somebody in their office physically at least once a year, um, sometimes more. So we do that, 
And it's not like, okay, you've got two, two hours to go and work out what's going on here. Um, it, for us, it's as many meetings as it, as it takes. You've got to be able to, if it's a new product, you've got to be able to understand enough about it to effectively, we're not, not going to go out and set up shop and sort of replicate what you do, but you've got to be able to explain it and justify it, um, and come up with a view. And, and so we, we, we do that. We always have a couple of people go to the meetings. So you've got different viewpoints. Um, we've got for, for, so that's for a new one, but for an existing manager, we've got like a, a library of, of file notes and stuff like that. So we build on that, that knowledge every, every time we meet with the manager. Um, and then we have a framework that we would go through for various areas, like the people, the process, portfolio management, different things like that, that, that we see as being the key, key drivers. And we've got points that we give out. So we've got a hundred points to give out and you come up with a score. And that's going to determine whether you're highly recommended, recommended, approved. And so when we do that scoring, when you talk about the checks and balances, one of the things that that's, I think is really important that, that, that we do is that people do that separate, separately. So I do it, you do it, Got it, and I don't tell you what I've done until I've done it. So because yeah. um, I want that independent thought. And so then we come together and then if we disagree, we'll hash it out. And in our group, our, the research team, if we can't agree, we'll vote on that. And then that's actually a um, like a blind vote. So there's no... No pressure. I'm thinking, oh God, Matt's voted like that. I need to vote like him. Yeah. Um, so that it's, it's sort of easier for people. And we've got things like if you've, you know, if you're on probation, um, you know, you've just joined, you're on probation. Um, you don't get a vote. If you've been there less than 12 months, you get half a vote, that, that kind of thing. So, but otherwise everyone gets a say. And, you know, whether you're, you've been there for 10 years and I've only been there for two your vote for one is the same as my vote for one. So, so that's sort of the checks and balances and the model that, that we operate. Um, it is like a pay for ratings model. And so, you know, sometimes people will talk about, Oh, you know, the biases with all of that. So we keep the commercial aspect of it very separate. So for example, I do all of the commercial stuff. There's the analysts never, and they don't actually know how much the reports, you know, what the commercial aspect of it is. So I do all of that. Um, and look, we have a pretty straightforward model. There's no, you know, there's no, you know, matey mate discounts or, or everyone gets charged exactly the same. And that's like as per, you know, ASIC guidelines yeah. on, on, you know, research. Yeah. Well, I can certainly attest it's a very, very thorough process. I'd be interested to know any interesting or funny stories. <laughs> no, no namespaces, of course, <laughs> regarding manager meetings or responses and things like that when you've been doing your research. I think the funniest one for me would be, well, we tried to do a meeting once in New York and it was very much a, a failed attempt. We had a couple of their represent, representatives from, I think one was from Asia and one was from New York out in Australia, um, drumming up business. They wanted a rating. We were about to go over to the US and do a research trip. And so we're like, okay, yeah, we can squeeze you in on, you know, Wednesday afternoon, four, four for, you know, an hour and a half kind of thing as a get to know you kind of thing. So we rock up to this, um, they're sort of on the edge of, um, what fifth and like sort of near the end, the south end of Central Park, go in there um, and, you know, see these um, two people at the front desk. Yep. Hmm. They were a bit like, hmm, not quite expecting us kind of thing, but, you know, took us to a room. So we're sitting in there, sitting in there, waiting, waiting, waiting. And um, the phone rings 
And we're like, oh, that's really weird. So sort of, oh, okay, so I answer the phone, yep. So this portfolio manager we're meant to be meeting with um, is out at a conference, not there. And I'm like, ah, uh, where's the conference? Is it in New York or, you know, is it somewhere else? Oh, no, it's in New York. He's going to be coming. He's, he'll come over. I'm like, okay, okay. So waiting, waiting. And um, I'm sitting there with um, Quan, a colleague from the team. And we're sort of looking at each other and go, it's like, right, we'll give him half an hour and then we're gone. Because we'd already been there probably half an hour by then. So he does rock up and um, definitely not interested in having a chat to us. So there's been been a, a sort of a missed communication between being his sort of, I guess, sales reps and, and people. Um, and so then we start we start asking questions and he was just not interested, not interested. And you sort of kept talking about, well, if I had a presentation, you know, I could tell you this. And if I had had a presentation, I'd do this. So I had the presentation that the, the sales guys had given me from April. Um, I had that with me. And so I sort of thought I, I pulled that out of my bag and I said, oh, here's a, here's a presentation. Why don't you, you know. Can you refer to that? I know it's back from April. Well, that really annoyed him. And then he was just really terrible, just like obnoxious. And so Quan and I kind of looked at each other and thought, yeah, right, and um, sort of finished. I said to him, well, I think we've got everything we re- really need now. So, um, yeah, thanks. We'll see you later. And off we went. Never heard from them again. I think there's a few uh, few managers out there taking a few mental notes <laughs> of, um, of how not to conduct a meeting. It was funny, um, but yeah. No, I bet it was. I bet, I bet it's a whole range of things. Mm. So, so what do you reckon happens from here? If you had to look forward uh, in your industry and I guess across the funds management industry, maybe in investment ratings and so on, what do you reckon happens from here in the next kind of five years or so that we should look out for? I think the... The, the trends that that I guess that I see are very much related to um, probably things that are you know very dear to your heart and to a lot of people's heart. It's the whole um, you know climate change, um, ethical, social, responsible, responsible side of things. So I think even in the last twelve months, um, two years, like mainstream, um, we've seen big changes in that, and um, that's one of the things. If I sort of think about, well, what's changed versus ten years ago, or you know, fifteen years ago to now, um, ESG, sustainability, those kinds of things were they'd come up in a meeting occasionally, and and often it would be you'd have a one person sitting in their own silo, sort of doing doing what they're doing. Um, as I said, it, 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 it might come up, but it was typically in, um, you know, full-on socially responsible managers, and there there weren't necessarily that many many of those. Um, and so the big change, if you come forward now, I think in every meeting that we have, it, it's it's gone full circle. It would be very rare if we didn't have those sorts of discussions, and the majority of people would have those sorts of inputs into their day in day out research process so so i see that as something that that will continue forward and i mean honestly um you know if we're going to meet these um temperature targets and things like that there has to be a big big focus on that um you know big time so um i did a trip recently and and that was in europe and i think people are a lot more advanced you know in europe than, than yeah, what we our, are here. Robin, our head of sustainability was just in Europe last week and the, the attitudes and the questions are very different. Um, yeah. And, and I think that, that trend that you refer to, it's very much an enduring one. And and the way I think about that is that the, the person in the street who has $10,000 in a super fund, um, they care. Yeah. And 
um, they are the the end consumer. They are the end creator of wealth throughout society. And if they all care, they will make their managers care. Yep. They'll make their yep. super funds care. Um, they will make the media care. They will make companies care. And and that's why it's an enduring trend. It's not something that managers or consultants or whatever are kind of saying, you know what, this is kind of interesting. It's coming from the grassroots. Yeah. And the other aspect is the grassroots generally is coming from are young. So they've got their life ahead of them. Um, it actually leads me to my next question. Um, this greenwashing area, yeah. it's something that, ASIC's been talking about, there's something that the ACCC has been talking about. How do you get confident that a manager's not just saying the right things and yeah. putting a few slides in their yeah. slide deck and saying it's integrated and we care about it and this is what we do and so on and so forth? What are the types of things you're looking for around genuineness there for a manager with regards to ESG? Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely, um, I mean, you see the word, green and sustainable sort of slipping into um, the names of products. And I know ASIC is is you know, starting to crack down on all that kind of stuff too. But but what do we do? It's in some sense it's an extension of what we already do. Um, it's the data that we collect, the questions that we ask, the analysis that we do um, to, to really sort of go underneath what's in there. Because yes, and it's like anything, you might say, okay, we do this and our process is great. And then we'll we collect all of your portfolio holdings and, and sort of go through those. And I mean, sure, we've got sort of style and analytic systems that we, we do, but it's also even just an eyeball. You know, if you can look at that and if you say to me, for example, that, you know, we're low turnover and then I look at your portfolio and think like, oh, my God, you know, you've sold this this stock so many times in, in the last 12 months. Well, that, that doesn't add up. So it's that kind of stuff that we do because you might say – um, I suppose that like an example that that's tricky is that we do see some managers that on the surface, like they might be invested in companies that are heavily into, into coal or fossil fuels, for example. And you might look at that and think, oh, you know, they've been saying they're green and they're invested in this, you know, that's terrible. But it's, I think the word transition is, is maybe overused, but it's a really important one because you might have uh, a holding in a company that, that is right now um, in fo- into fossil fuels, but they're starting down the path with renewables and um, other sorts of things. And that transition phase, I think, um, so yeah, as I said, it's sort of a long way of saying it, it's, you need to look underneath because there's more to it than, than just what's on the surface. So that's the kind of thing that we do to, to work out, like, does it really stack up? Well, I mean, you have all the information. So, yeah, yeah the managers have to give you everything. Yeah, that's right. And you've got it all there. So you're yeah. in the best position to make that assessment yeah. independently. Yeah. Um, and it's very much a, um, it comes down to an individual with a lot of these, like the, the ethical, um, sustainable side of things. What's important to me is, is not necessarily what's important to somebody else. But, and it gets to your point about the $10,000. You know, we've all got sort of like together, you know, with our, our $10,000, you can sort of, you know, there's this groundswell, but, and, but yeah. And so that, that makes it hard. Uh, I think it makes it hard at a retail um, perspective if what, if what you can get is sort of like what's, what's dished up to you, not necessarily what's tailored to you if you were a large institutional investor. Um, 
but but yeah. So does that answer? No, your it does question? answer the question. Yeah. It's a, it's a, and also it's an you know, it's an evolving area. So you know, five years ago when we set up ethical partners, the the whole ESG landscape is quite different yeah. to what it is now. Yeah. So it, it evolves and it changes. Yeah. And I know you've you've been evolving and changing your process as well. I mean, a big part of that ESG picture is how workforces have changed. And I know you were um, you went four days a week um, many years ago, yeah. maybe fifteen ish years ago. Probably, Probably when it yeah. was when it was not really no. typically done, and you're able to to try and achieve that work home balance when it just wasn't an option for many. Now today it's different. Yeah. Now yeah. maybe it's gone too far the other way. I don't know, <laughs> but um, it's different. So just again, do you see yourself as a bit of a pioneer in those days? Was it hard, kind of coming through in a male dominated industry, balancing a family, doing four days a week, and being so successful? How do you think about that period and how do you think about the future of work? Yeah, it was – I had a break of about five uh, five years when our boys were young. And so during that time um, – so there was three years when I was the at-home carer. There were two years where both my husband and I um, were at home. And then when our eldest started school, then I went back to work and he, he was an at home, um, carer. So that was kind of, I mean, that he's a bit of a trailblazer too, really. Mm. Um, so he was definitely in the minority in the schoolyard. So I had a fair bit of time to think about what I wanted to do. Um, you know, when I came back to work and a couple of the things that were important to me, um, were that I decided that I wanted to keep doing manager research. I could have gone and worked for Russell, but I would have done something else because they didn't do manager research in, in Melbourne at the time. But I really wanted to do manager research, so that, was, so that was number one. And the other thing was that I wanted to work four days a week because um, I th- kind of thought, well, four days, that's still a pretty good, you know, like mm. that's that's close enough to five kind of thing. And, um, I'm sure you ended up doing actually about five or six days yeah, exactly. worth as well. exactly. You just do more and you don't get paid for it. <laughs> um, so, and I gave myself six months. I thought I'll start looking around before I sort of compromise on that four day a week. Um, and I managed to, well, not manage, that makes it sort of, um, you know, sort of interviewed and um, got got that job relatively um, painlessly with Lonsec. Um, and I did that for, I worked four days a week at Lonsec um, when I was at the Future Fund and when I first started at Zenith. So that was all up. That was probably like about six years. And after maybe a year um, at Zenith, and um, it was that very much you're working six, you know, all night, five, five and a half kind of thing, getting paid for four. Um, then I went um, five days a week, but it was always, I, um, I always started late. So like 9.30, um, on one day a week. So I could walk to, walk our boys to school and, and do that. So, but it's hard though, because you're, um, it's, you, so in that, like that, that day off or that, that fourth day, I would do things like, volunteer at the school with the reading I'd help in the garden program the kitchen program do excursions you could do things like that and I was I was there when they left and I was there when they came home so that's a hard thing I think um but yeah as I said I you know maybe I'm a trailblazer the thing I say to people now about that because people sort of look back and say oh well you know you did that how did you do it um you just have to be really sort of strict with your time and and it's really hard I'm not you know not that good at it now you know you're working full-time I'd yeah, goodness knows. You have dinner, tidy up, and then you go back and do some more work. It's ridiculous. 
So, but you're right. And like the whole, um, you know, with COVID, how things have changed. Um, in some respect, it's been really good. I think it's what, what might have taken like 20 years to achieve in terms of work flexibility. We've, we've got that done in a couple. Um, but, but you're right. I think to sort of, there's got to be a balance somewhere. Um, and I think because we've all got these home offices now, that sort of distinction between, not that I didn't before, but, but, you know that boundary is is a lot more blurred, and that's not good for you, I don't think. Yeah, look, we could we could spend a whole podcast yeah, yeah, talking yeah. about this particular yeah. issue. That's for sure. There's so so much there, but you've managed to juggle it superbly, from what I can see. And I'm sure, again, your team's probably looking at that and going, "Yeah, how can I do that?" Being super organised definitely is one thing I know, and I can imagine you yeah. being super organised. Yeah. I want to jump now. I just don't want to run out of time to talk yeah. about. The, you know, you've raised a lot of money for charity, yeah. in particularly um, for the guide dogs. And August, each August, love the yeah. name. We we talk about the name in here. Um, did, um, did you? It just did. Did August become the big month because August sounds so good, or is it actually a key month for guide dogs? No, I think it's just the August August, you know. And then because I'll talk about. Pawsome, like you know, dogs paws, awesome, yeah. pawsome, <clears throat> August. It's a, it's a funny kind of thing. We're talking about August in here, yeah. And uh, we've been a, a modest supporter. You have and, been a very um, good supporter. Uh, I mean, making a difference is important to you, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's um, and I know it is to you and what you do here as well. And and there are different ways that you can make a difference. And you know, financial support is definitely um, you know, is definitely one way you can do it. And um. And your time, you know, yeah. I think that's a really important thing that, um, and it's hard to put a value on that. And, um, yeah, so what, what we do is, you know, volunteer stuff, puppy raising, and then like this, the August, the August thing that becomes a, it becomes a bit of a personal challenge, you know, on the fundraising front. We get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And, um, and I think for us, I see the difference that, um, that a guide dog, um, has made and look, guide dogs don't just do guide dogs. They do all sorts of mobility support. Well, and your, your first dog was uh, end up being a yeah a custom sniffer dog. Sniffer airport, dog. Right? Yeah, she was a custom sniffer <laughs> dog. She was a, um, a high um, highly energetic dog. Uh, they would have had to find uh, match up a really highly energetic person for her. Our second one became a um, a guide dog, and we met the guy um, that that this one Velma went to and it just, it really makes you think about a lot of things that you take for granted. So he was a guy our age and, um, and having this dog really opened up his world. Um, and you know, I'd really, you just take your, you know, your vision, your access to things, your mobility for granted. And, um, yeah, so that was meeting him was, you know, really special. Well, really good, good on you for the work that you do. I've, I've got to ask you one question, though. Yeah. So you recently trained Geordie, a yeah. black Labrador, who yeah. didn't actually didn't make, make it, it into the Guide yeah. Dogs program, but it meant that you got to keep her. Yeah. Now, so that must have been like a bittersweet moment. How Very. You, yeah. <laughs> so you train and get to a point, and there must be a lot of reasons why God dogs yeah. don't make it. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Again, it's probably a, yeah. probably something we talk about in a whole podcast, but you got to keep her as your yeah. family pet. And I imagine yeah. you get quite attached. You do. Along the process. So you must have gone, oh, you didn't make it, but yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, it's really hard to say goodbye to them. Um, 
you like I usually when we go and take them back and even the ones that we look after for a couple of months um you know that you get really attached to them and you go and take them back and I'm usually bawling my eyes out I can't speak to the person um because oh you know <laughs> and then you yeah and you miss them you really miss them so but yeah it was very bittersweet so we got to keep her so well, on the very first night that she was our pet you know, I'm sitting on the couch because when they're in training to be guide dogs, they're not allowed on the furniture or on the bed or anything like that. So I'm sitting on the couch and I, I looked around. I said to my husband and my son, like, what do you reckon? Are we going to break some of the rules? And they're like, oh. And then so I'm sitting there and I pat, pat on the couch, said to Jordy, come on, come on. Like, bang, she was up on the couch. Straight never up. Never looked back. <clears throat> no convincing. No convincing needed. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I've got a few general questions now yeah, as, yeah. We, uh, as we kind of keep one eye on the clock. As an organisation grows, how do you – do you think you stop the culture of that organisation from being institutionalised? So kind of dampening that entrepreneurial and, and innovative thinking. You must see it within your company and the companies you worked at. You must see it with your managers as well. Yeah, it's um, and that's a hard one. And even with our, you know, with what's happened with our business, you know, we've gone from a small, small business and now we're owned by a much bigger business. So I think the key to it is is having the connection with, with the people in your team. Um, and so having that that strong connection and then also having that that feeling that and it goes back to you know like having a go um that you feel like if you come up with an idea that you can have a go and and make a change so that that you can have an impact and you can see like even in your day-to-day work you can see where you have an impact so i think that sort of drives that entrepreneurial um side of things that that and you know, like you don't need to think about answering every possible question or everything scenario that could go wrong with, you know, you can work it out as you go. I mean, okay, so some things you've got to, I'm not saying it's just fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing, but I think that drives it. Um, so that it comes connection. back to, to leadership and personal relationships. I think so. Yeah. yeah. You've hired a lot of people over the years. So if you've got two equally <laughs> qualified candidates, yeah. who do you work out who to hire? Oh my God, to be so lucky. It is uh, a both, tight. Both these days, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a tight, tight market. So if I had two equally qualified candidates, um, it, it would be the person I, well, not I, but because we would have multiple interviews within the team that I thought would get on, um, you know, from a, um, cultural perspective, personality wise, that we'd get on with them, you know, get along with. You spend a lot of time at work. Um, we travel with people. You've you've got to get on with them. It's like it's no good if you if you don't. Um, so that that's not really answering your question. Well, no, it no, sort of no, does. It kind of is. Culture yeah. is important. And yeah. I, I think that's right. But you can get very very intelligent people, very very good at what they do. But if people don't want to work with them, then they're less effective. Yeah. So no, that that's yeah. interesting. We haven't had that answer yet. There's a twentieth episode of Good Investment oh, right. Podcast. But yeah, that's, let's do that. I've got a couple always, of other answers for this one too. Please, it's like go for if it. they were exactly yes, the same, the and same. I had a male and a female, and you. You know, we thought we'd get along both with, with them. You, you probably know what I'm going to say here. I'd take the female. Um, Fair but enough. these days, if I had two, I'd probably hide both. It's a very, very tight market. Yeah. Can you remember the, the um, what's the earliest or best investment decision you can remember making and, and how did that work out and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I think um, – so my grandfather was a very – he's an accountant, was an accountant, um, and – was born in like 1909, so went through, you know, very hard times, um, that kind of stuff. So my earliest thing that I can remember is going with him to the bank. I would have been in primary school. I don't know why I would have been going on a school day, but 
maybe we had day off for school, but the bank was open. Um, and this was in a small country town. And I think we had probably like two or three banks then, like nothing there now. Um, going with money that I think I must have got from my birthday, um, odd jobs, that kind of stuff. And we opened up like a, it was like a term deposit. It was because we already had a savings, you know, a savings book kind of thing, but it was a term deposit at the ANZ bank. And, um, and so I think that's the earliest thing. And it's that, you know, that was very much my introduction to that. Like you get this interest, like for nothing. I haven't done any <laughs> odd jobs or anything like that. And so that whole sort of compounding interest. So that's, and I think always, you know, stuck with me. It's not like I've got all my money in term deposits, but, um, you know, later in life, uh, I think when we bought our first house, that was money that I had to put towards a deposit. So yeah. No, no, those those experiences are really important, particularly with people you're close to yeah, and yep. you remember them and they yeah. stick with you. Yep. What's the most common manager mistake you see um, most often? I think it's almost a it's almost like a greed kind of thing. It's like growth on growth on growth. So you might be really say you're a Oh, I don't want to say, give two examples because it's, it seems like I'm picking on someone, but I'm not going to. But say you've got a really good product and the business is going really well and you kind of think, okay, so how can I generate more, more, um, you know, revenue, that kind of stuff. So, all right, maybe I'll have an offshoot. I'll start up another product. And so then you, you sort of take your eye off the main game. Um, you might have resources spread too thin. You might resource it up, but it takes away from your main, main kind of thing. So, and that, you know, the, I don't see the point of doing two things average when you can do one thing really well. So we see that a bit. The other thing um, that that I've sort of seen over the years is it comes down to capacity, and particularly in small cap managers, that that you sort of start out with you've got this much capacity, um, and then you'll take on more, and it's like, oh no, 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 we can do more, you know, oh, we can do more, and then um, that, you know, that that I just think that's a recipe for disaster as well. And there's heaps of studies on, you know, that. That sort of, um, you know, startup alpha potential in small cap managers in the early days, um, you know, when they're not carrying a lot of suitcases around, kind of thing. So that that's probably yeah, like two things that 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 we'd see mm. and, no, that's, that's, um, and keep that's an eye out for. No, that definitely makes yeah. sense. Just um, what, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, well, I have just finished a book called The Sisters in Resistance, I think it is. It's about these women um, resistance, worked in the resistance, set in Paris, pre and post-World War II. Really, really fascinating. Um, fiction or non-fiction? A bit of both. Okay. A bit of both. So, um, yeah, so that, that was really good. Um, I read a lot of cookbooks. Um, which sort of seems like a funny thing to read. But Is that with like a nutrition focus? Mm, no, no, not necessarily. No. More like a cooking and eating kind of focus. Cooking, eating, family events yeah, type. Yeah, yeah, I just like reading cookbooks. Yeah. So there's a new um, Hedy McKinnon um, cookbook about vegetables called yeah. Tender Heart. So um, it focuses like a chapter on each veggie. So I'm doing that and I'm reading a book about, um, it's called Live Live Life Loaf. It's about, I've I'm late to the game, but I'm um, I'm in the pandemic's over. But now I've decided I'm going to start and try and learn how to make sourdough bread. So, um, so I've been been doing that, and I've got one that I haven't started yet, which is the um, Bill Browder. Um, oh, it's oh, the, the, the freeze or something. So he wrote a book called Red, Red Notice. Notice. Red Notice, yeah, yeah. Red Notice, That's which our, is an absolute. Our, um, in our ethical partners library, just oh, over to our right. You can't yeah. quite see there, but that is an absolute page turner. <coughs> it is. And, I could put it down. Um, freezing order. 
is the That's a new is the, one, right? the new one. So yeah. yeah, so I know as soon as I start it, I just want to be able to. So I just need to set aside a day and I'll just read it. So yeah. a, there is a wide range of topics there, Bromley. Yeah, very, um, very wide range of topics. Uh, what, what advice would you give your twenty-one-year-old self? Um, there's a song that I'll tell you the advice and then I'll tell you tell you where it comes from. Wear sunscreen. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? Um, no. Exercise. Look after your knees. Dance. Dance like no one's watching you. So there's a. I can see you thinking. I know. I know that dance like no one's watching you. I've always liked that expression. Yeah. So there's a Baz Luhrmann song that I think might is so set to well it's this um, hypothetical commencement speech um, for start of. I don't know, high school or uni, something like that, that Baz Luhrmann has set to music. I think it might be in the Romeo and Juliet film and it starts out like this and it's like wear sunscreen, you know, look after your knees because once they're gone, you'll miss them, right. uh, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, sunscreen. Um, but seriously, the the advice that, that that I would give to myself, which is the advice that I give to my to my sons, and we've sort of talked about this a little bit in the beginning, like you don't actually know where you're going, but if you, you know, what path are you on? So, do the things that that you find interesting and the things that you love because it will kind of come together mm. it'll it'll lead you in a direction that that you know you don't know about it now so um, yeah that that's my advice and yeah, wear sunscreen that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no that, that's that's really good advice and again i think another cup one i think michael trail an early guest on this podcast might have said something similar and don't worry about it too much. No. You know, don't worry about the five or 10 or 20-year plan. For good people, it will come together and try and find what you're good yeah. at. Yeah. Hopefully it's useful to other people as yeah. well. That helps. Yeah. Um, if you can be good at something and have it useful to other people, then that's a really powerful combination. Don't worry too much about the future. Yeah, yeah. No, really good yeah. advice, really yeah. good advice. Um, any one person that's inspired you the most? That's a hard one. Um, and I, I've thought about this a bit, and Andrew Denton is somebody that um, I find very inspiring. And and you might think like, oh, that's a really weird one, but the thing that sticks out in my mind and why him is that I'm not sure when he used to do this TV series, um, Enough Rope. I remember it well. Yeah, yeah. and so. Probably what you do when you go out and interview company management and what we do, what you've done today to me is that you ask a few questions and you shut up and let the person talk and you just listen. And I go, I'm now saying, you know, like enough rope is, is, you know, maybe not the politically correct kind of thing to say, but that's, um, so I've, I think he's very clever about sort of how, you know, how he gets people to talk. And so I'm probably giving away my trade secret here, but that's a bit how I sort of, that's how I approach my manager silence, research career. Silence is you listen. very much underrated. Yeah. And we always say that people are uncomfortable with silence, so they, they typically yeah, try fill and it. fill it. Mm. Um, and there's been a few bits of silence in here because you've been too smart for me because I've tried <laughs> in my um, my amateurish way to allow silence and you're quite comfortable with it. So you're a tough one, Bronwyn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, man. No, thanks. No, no, I really love uh, Andrew Denton and the way he talks to people and he must have, I've never met him, but he must have a very comforting way about him 
because people want to talk to him and they don't feel threatened by him and they're quite happy to have a good old chat. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you've got a great conversation. So yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's really, really good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. All right, now we're really winding down here. So we're, we're going to play the world-famous either-or game. Oh, okay. Um, well, well, it's not really world-famous, but anyway, we keep on saying that and maybe people will know it after over time. So I'm going to give you two choices, and yet you can't prepare for this. I haven't given you any notes. No. So this is off the top of your head. Don't worry, they're not that hard. Um, and you've got to give me one answer very quickly. All right. Right. So would you prefer to climb Mount Rainier or Mount Kilimanjaro? I'll go for Kilimanjaro because I've already done Rainier. <laughs> I thought it might say that. <laughs> to ski Hotham or Threadbow? Threadbow. To know something about a lot or a lot about something? A lot about something. I thought you might say that. If you had to do one of these, which would it be extensive domestic <laughs> travel for work in the US or domestic travel in Australia? I'm going to go for Australia because I've seen more of the US than I have of Australia. And domestic air travel for work in the US is not that much fun. No, it's no, not it's not. at all. No, the airport's usually a bit of a... And I know you did, you you did a what? lot of it. You yeah, did yeah. a lot of it yeah. um, when you were over there. That's it. I've got nothing else. In fact, I'm going to give you a, you a chance. You want to ask me a question. You're normally asking all the questions. Now I'm asking them all. Oh, wow. The tide has really turned. I haven't prepared anything, Matt. <laughs> no, that's okay. You don't I'm have a to. researcher. You don't have to. I'll be hopeless. I won't be prepared either. Um, thank you so much for being on the Good Investing Podcast. I think people have a wide range of knowledge from nothing to a lot about what you do. It's a really fascinating area. You're highly regarded in the industry as a person of integrity and experience, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today, Bronwyn. So thank you. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate appreciate you asking me. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.